Thank you for joining us as we elevate the Black entrepreneur experience by interviewing CEOs, thought leaders, innovative thinkers, and Black entrepreneurs across the globe. I'm your host, Dr. Francis Richards. Former NFL linebacker, founding partner of West Coast Fitness, and an advocate for equality. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks, Dr. Richards. Thanks for having me. I've given our audience such a brief bio. Why don't you fill in the gaps and share with our audience what you'd like them to know about you and your business? Yeah, well, I think um, there's so many nuances and so many different things about me. I think, you know, first and foremost, uh, as a Black entrepreneur, I'd like people to know that I am also a former athlete that transitioned from professional sports and had a very successful trans transition as an entrepreneur and a second life as an entrepreneur. And I've, I've had actually much more success as an entrepreneur and as a founder than I have as an employee in the NFL. So um, with that being said, a lot of doors have opened, um, whether that be advocacy and sitting on boards for companies for DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, leadership, um, contracting for companies um, that are small startups, whether they're in the fitness space or in the franchising space, those opportunities have presented themselves. Um, and some additional doors have also presented themselves and I've taken full advantage of them in the space of venture capital and private equity. So one of my companies was acquired by a private equity firm. So um, I know what it's like to be acquired. I know what it's like to be a founder. And then I also am a venture in venture capital. And so I know what it's like to invest in these companies and to invest in founders and what I'm looking for when it comes to founders and products and innovative ideas. And also I'm very acutely aware of what it's like when I go into these rooms and I go into these places and I see that there's not a lot of people that look like me. So um, to have representation and to know that I'm leading the way and I'm carrying people on my back um, and I wholeheartedly accept that additional responsibility. I know what that's like as well. So um, I know we'll get into all these different aspects, um, but I think a lot of the success comes from representation and it comes from sustainability and it comes from diversity, equity and inclusion. And when you have all these components, um, sustainable companies, whether that be environmental or uh political or social that companies see more success and see more ROI from investing in, in the environment or investing in people of color or investing in women. So um, I'm excited to be a part of uh, what's going on in, in today's society. Thank you for sharing that. Talk about the transition going from a professional athlete to an entrepreneur. Was that I think uh, I, I think for me, I seamlessly made the transition because I was a professional athlete for 13 years. And before I made it into the NFL, the NFL told me on several occasions that I wasn't good enough and I wasn't allowed to play in the NFL, basically saying that I wasn't a football player. So I had to figure out who my identity was as Brendan Ion Badejo and what I stood for in a moral compass and what do I believe in, in terms of how the world should operate and what's of value um, and how I could build myself as a person and my character and, and be able to bounce back from adversity and go either through or around barriers and continue to improve myself. So um, I had a long time <laughs> to think about who I am and what I need to do and what I need to be to be successful, whether regardless of what the field is. And I was fortunate enough to have several opportunities to make it to the NFL. Um, so the transition, yeah, I, I think the hardest part was just getting th the most tumultuous time in my life was going from a boy that played football to a man that played football and then football not loving me the way that I loved it and trying to figure out who I am as a person without football. And once I figured that out and then I made it to the NFL and then I played for 13 years and trying to find and rediscover or apply all the things that I learned in the world to the to corporate America, I think that was a lot easier than trying to make it into the NFL. So um, most athletes that that are in the NFL, they're in the league twenty by the time they're 21 and 22, and they're out of the league by the time they're 25 and 26. 
Whereas I was able to be there until I was 36 and I went to business school while I was in the league and graduated from business school and did different certificates and business um, programs in addition to my MBA. Um, so I had time in the league and time in the market to develop myself. So it's a lot harder to figure out who you are when you're 26 than it is when you're 36. So it was, while it was still hard and I applied everything that I learned in football through teamwork and hard work, I applied that to franchising and, and building my business. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand if you want to reach great heights, the, the dedication and commitment that it takes. Um, so for me, I just, I'm, I'm a very hard worker and a diligent worker. So, um, I was very fortunate to be able to live my dream twice now. When you, you talked about going to business school while you were playing in the NFL, did you have a mentor that was sharing with you different things that you should be? You know, I've never had a mentor. The closest thing I've had to a mentor is my older brother and he's 18 months older than me. And I consider him kind of the icebreaker and I'm the ship. I'm the Titanic that comes through um, with the icebreaker in front of it versus the Titanic that comes through without an icebreaker in front of it. So he's 18 months older than me. And we've done all the same things professionally, whether that's football, NBA, and um, post-NFL career as well. Um, we've both seen a lot of success post. Um, but the best advice I did receive was from my linebacker coach at UCLA. And I met with him maybe in 2008 or 2009. And I knew I just had a few years of football left. I'd been playing for seven or eight years. And um, he said, Brendan, you're so smart. He's like, the best thing you could do for yourself is go to business school. And once upon a time, I told myself, like, I'm not going back to school. And one of my teammates at the time, Hunter Hillenmeyer, he was going to like Chicago University and he was getting his MBA um, at a very highly touted uh master's program um, in Chicago. And so once coach Bobby Field told me that, and he was the assistant athletic director at the time, which, you know, there was some mentorship there. You know, we'd, we'd have our, our, our conversations more so in the off season than during the season. Once he told me that um, an opportunity came up and my friend Susan Lucci at the University of Delaware was at the time at the University of Baltimore. And she's also your friend as well. She had helped myself, Dominique Foxworth and Ed Reed. Um, and these are these are guys in the NFL that are having very successful careers in the NFL and they're making multi-million dollars, a lot more money than I made. Um, she kind of took us all through the uh, entrance into getting your MBA. So, yeah, I, I didn't have a mentor, but if it wasn't for probably Susan Lucci and Coach Bobby Field, um, my story might be slightly different right now than it is. So. I took the advice and I applied it. What was that story or that aha moment when you knew you were going to be successful? You know what? We do a lot of different case studies in, in our MBA programs and we do these case studies or we'd have competitions and I'd always would figure it out. And I'm competitive. You know, a lot of people are competitive and I wasn't there to win. I was there to figure it out. And so we do all these different competitions and I'd always, my group would always be winning and we'd always be figuring things out. But one of the interesting case studies was the Challenger flight, the, um, the famous Challenger flight that exploded upon takeoff in the eighties. And they had set this case study up as if it was a formula one car race. And they gave us all the same data that NASA had in terms of temperature, in terms of this O-ring um, and its ability to corrode over time or to fail in certain temperatures. And they just pretended that really nothing was at risk. And they just pretended that everybody was just a competitor. And are, you're a competitor. Are you going to set up your Formula One team? And are you going to race your car? And they said, hey, these cars cost a million dollars. And um, I was, I persuaded my group from the data and the information that we had. I'm like, no, absolutely. We're not going to race our car because our car is going to explode and crash. And why waste a million dollars when we already know in the data and all the information that we have present is telling us that this is going to fail. And it's not, oh, well, you're going to, it's not one of those types of things where you miss every shot that you don't take. Well, this is one of those things, like if you take the shot, you know that you're going to fail. And once I figured that out, I'm like, oh, this is the challenger and this is NASA and they didn't figure this out and lives were at stake. Um, that's when I was like, hmm, I see things a little bit differently and I'm able to apply 
information a little bit differently than than some people would and i could really take other people's projects and potentially make them better and so not only did i feel very confident coming out of business school but i also felt very confident going into franchising versus starting a company from scratch so that was kind of an aha moment for me a lot of us are spectators when it comes to the super bowl Talk about the high, or it could be the low, um, of being a Super Bowl champ. Yeah, you know, I look at it quite differently now that I'm 45, having played in two Super Bowls and having lost one, and then five years later getting another opportunity and having won one. And my takeaway is that you would rather be there regardless of the result than not having had been there at all. And my other takeaway is that the high of winning fades more than the scar of losing. So losing the game hurts more. But even with that being said, having reached that level and having been there in itself is a blessing. And it always gives you something to chase and strive for. And then having won it and then knowing what it feels like come full circle. And my brother had won it 12 years before me. And so having kind of that looming in the family and and chasing that, um, it was amazing between, you know, my mom and her two sons, she's had, she's been to three Super Bowls, you know? So um, I think people focus so much on winning and there's so much about the process that can be learned. And just to make it there to be the second best football team in the world. And even if you do lose, the process is still very similar to get there. So um, people put a lot of emphasis on the winner and what it feels like to win. But I think it's a great accomplishment in itself just to get there. And nobody remembers the losers. And, you know, I've been there and I've lost. But um, you're still winning more than anybody else by, by getting there. And, yes, it feels great to win. Um, and sometimes we overlook the process when we win and we think we're better than we are when we win. But when we lose, we really look inside and we learn a lot more from these losses and what could we have done differently and how could you have been better? How could the team have been better? How could you have been more supportive? And if you win, you don't necessarily look at those things. So um, I think both are, are equally important. It feels better to win. It hurts more to lose. And I think no matter what, you just have to see how you can gain and and grow from that. Advice you wish you had followed? Hmm. That is an interesting one. I know there, I I, I can't say there's any advice I wish I had followed. And like I mentioned, I never really had a mentor. And with that being said, I've always marched to the beat of my own drum and I've been a trendsetter for a lot of things. Um, I've also taken longer to get to certain destinations because of that, but I've learned along the way. Um, So I can't say there's advice that I wish I'd followed, but I will say that I do lack patience sometimes. And I think it would benefit me if I was a more patient person um, and just sitting in uncomfortable situations a little bit better. Talk about marriage and managing your business. Well, the type of person I am, I, I'm a Virgo. So, you know, how you do one thing is kind of how you do everything. So I, I kind of look at the marriage as managing a family and managing home <laughs> um, and division of labor with my wife and I, and you know, how we're going to start our week and how we're going to manage three kids, two dogs, having a two-year-old, a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old with each kid playing sports and the dogs need activities and the two-year-old needs activities. So really it's no different than a business. I, I have amazing business partners and there's division of labor and just like my wife and I, or my partners and I, my business partners and I, there's things where I have strengths and there's things where I, there's times where I have weaknesses. And my wife fills in all the gaps where I'm weak. There's not really between the two of us. We're pretty whole. Um, there, yeah, obviously there's some places where we can both be better and do things better. Don't get me wrong. Um, and the same with my business partners and I, but I think there's beauty in business and beauty in marriage when you uplift each other 
and you become a whole. You become this solid foundation that can go out there and raise three amazing kids, or you can have 50 Orange Theory Fitness franchises that are doing very successful and very well. So, um, yeah, I think there's a there's a balance between the two, and I'm very similar in my marriage that I am in my business. And, you know, sometimes, you know, with the family, I put the business aside and I'm all in with the family and take a hike from the business. And a lot of times with the business, I have to take a hike from the family and, and focus in on the business and find that balance, that balance um, between the two. But I would say I'm very motivated to provide for my family and give my children all the things that I didn't have growing up. So it's, it's, while you know, I've missed some things with the kids. Um, I've also done a lot of things with my kids that I was never able to do with my parents. Um, so I, I believe that that sacrifice is worth it. Brandon, what is your zone of genius? My zone of genius. You know, I think that I'm the right person at the right time for the right situations. And sometimes it doesn't even have to do with me. It just has to do with my environment and perfect timing. For example, when I spoke out about marriage equality and LGBTQ plus rights, that was just the way that I was raised. And I just happened to be in the NFL when I spoke about it. And I just happened to write a letter to the Huffington Post um, in 2009 and be the first professional athlete to talk about marriage equality. Um, I know some other athletes did it at the same time as myself, um, uh, Scott Vegeta, um, and we're kind of we weren't working on this together. So you know, he did his and I did mine, and roughly around the same time they came out, we didn't know about it till later. Um, but yeah, I think I'm I'm a product of my environment, and you know, even for my parents, I'm biracial. My dad's Nigerian, my mom's Irish American. Had they had met in the South, and it had had it been in the '60s, then maybe they wouldn't have been able to get married. But luckily, it was the '70s, and they met in Illinois and they were able to get married and they taught me about certain things that were challenging for them and loving versus Virginia or my mom feeling a lot safer being a white woman in Nigeria than she felt being a white woman, a white woman with black kids in Chicago. So um, a lot of it is the way I was raised, the people around me that raised me up, the values that they put in me and then me applying those values into today's climate and people say, Brendan, you're so brave. You know, how did you speak up and how did you talk about it? I was like, well, it's just the right time in the right place. And, um, you know, while there were some barriers and some challenges, while I brought those things up in some threatening letters to my job and my livelihood, um, the environment was ultimately ready for me to make those comments and those statements and then to ultimately embrace them and then to be invited to dinners with the Obamas and to meet the Obamas and work with the White House as a surrogate for marriage equality and the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, it was just the right time. So I think, yeah, I, I think it's bigger than me. Like there's a calling and you can you can answer the call or you cannot answer the call. And I think things that, that I felt I can make an impact and make a difference, whether I was comfortable with them or not, I, I answered the call. And I think there's there's genius in that. And I think we all have that in us. And sometimes it's harder for some of us to find it than, uh, than others. But for me, I think that um, it wasn't hard for me. It, just the, the way that I was raised and the inequalities and the lack of opportunities that I saw and always being an underdog, I, I understood. And um, I was willing to, to put that on my shoulders. I kind of like I alluded to when I introduced myself that I'm willing to put things on my shoulders and put people on my back and to carry them along and, there's people before me that have, have done the same thing for me that I'm that I'll never know or I'll never meet, but they've been champions for equality and and different rights and, and issues that we're all benefiting from today. What problem exists in the world today that you would like to solve? Well, I think that the biggest problem in the world today is world peace. And that's very relevant right now with everything that's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Um, and I think it's the biggest challenge that we've ever faced. There's never been a time of, of world peace, even though there may not be fighting, but there's never been a time where everybody's been safe or neighbors aren't, you know, 
at each other's throats, whether that's countries um, or your actual neighbor, um, like Ahmad Arbery in, in Georgia. Um, so yeah, I think the biggest challenge is world peace. And oddly enough, I kind of have some theories as ways to, to, to help with world peace. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it comes from energy um, and having sustainable energy and having monetary energy um, a universal language. Uh, I'm not trying to wash out culture, um, eliminating borders, a universal currency. Um, so many things we do to make ourselves different from other people when we are all the same. Um, and then, you know, I want to respect different religions and I want to respect different cultures and different languages. And, you know, maybe those are more like relics, but if we invest more on how we're the same, um, then this will be a different world, but we're kind of stuck in our own way. And, you know, there's people leading the way where we keep evolving and, and, and the world is getting better, even though it seems like it may not be, it's getting better, but it's not where it should be. And we shouldn't be bombing other countries and, and other countries shouldn't feel like they have to bomb or, or dirty bombs, or they shouldn't, you know, like the whole Palestine and Israel conflict, um, where, you know, you have sticks and stones and dirty bombs versus armies. And um, and then when they eat dinner at night, they're eating the same, relatively the same food, you know, um, different religions and different cultures, but the same people that have been in the same place for thousands of years. So it's a complex, complex issue and it goes back so far. But if we ever reach world peace, then, oh man, just think about the art and the science and the innovation and the prospering that we're all going to do when we're just one people and not all these individual clans of, of people, which, but that's, that's human nature. I mean, you see monkeys fighting over a tree and we're very similar in the way that we fight over a border or religion um, and resources and whatnot. You know, when you think about, um, you mentioned being biracial and I'm going to use the subject of being biracial and also the NFL. And so when you got into the NFL, things are different than they are today. But we're seeing so many challenges, it appears, with the NFL players. What's different? Well, I, that, that's a multi-layered question. And when you ask that question, I probably see it on a lot of different levels than what you see it on and what the average person sees it on as well. Um, so I think I'll start, I'll start from the bottom and work my way up. Um, how is the NFL different? Well, the locker room's better. Um, certain language that you would see or hear in the locker room, you probably don't hear that as much. Um, whether that be racist or whether that be um, misogynistic language or um, um, homophobic language, I guarantee you that is all different now. Um, when you look at who's playing quarterback, there's a lot more black quarterbacks now um, than there was when I first started playing. Um and definitely in the past, there's a lot more. So, you know, we're talking from a player perspective. Now, if you look at coaching, there's women coaches. There hasn't been a, a, a head coach or a position coach, but assistant coaches. So starting to break through that barrier. Uh, when you look at referees, you're starting to see, we just had maybe last year our, all, our first all-black referee crew. And then in the last couple of years, a woman's broke the barrier and you see women officials um, in the NFL as well. So that's kind of on the bottom level, the bottom layer. When you start to work your way up, uh, now there's more black coaches than there was before. The Rooney rule was introduced 20 years ago. So right around the time I got into the league and then we kind of saw this peak of black coaches uh, maybe 10 years in and um, that number has gone down a bit, but there's more opportunity. There's more representation. We see black coaches um, and then from an executive standpoint, there's more black GMs and there's one black president of a team, which is the first black president, which you have in um, 
Washington, the Washington Football Club. So there's more opportunity. Is it where it should be? No, it's not where it should be, but there is progress there. Um, you see, we went from Colin Kaepernick being blacklisted to the NFL saying Black Lives Matters on the field and the NFL celebrating certain Black history and putting an emphasis on that, whether you can argue whether it's checking a box or is it something that they're really investing in believing in? You can have an argument about that. And then on the top level, ownership wise, there is one minority owner that I can think of. I know there's some women owners as well, um, but there are no black owners. Um, and that is something where there's zero representation there in a league that's 70% black. Um, there's not 70% head coaches. There's definitely not even 30%, uh, minority ownership. So there needs to be some work there. So kind of just, you know, starting at the bottom level and working the way up, you can see there's still a lot of work that has to be done. But on the same token, you could look back and talk about the first time uh, there was ever a black player in crossing um, that, that uh, line that um, the Jackie Robinson crossed in, in baseball um, and to where we are today, where the league is 70% black. So I got to respect that there's progress. Yes, it's been slow and there's there's still more that we could do and I look forward to that. Um, but yeah, that's my best answer. And when I look at that and we're looking at a, a lot of the um, young players having um, what appears to be kind of um, reckless driving or DUI, and I'm wondering if that's something that's not new or is it just because now everything is with, you know, information is more exposure? Yeah, well, I think it's more than information. I think it's liability um, with technology and with transparency. You, you know, things come up and things pop up. Whereas in the past, you know, if a guy got a DUI, you know, maybe he would call the the team. Every team has has a. It's not a bodyguard, but has a has a person that it's either worked for the local police force, and and he's kind of a caretaker, and he knows all the all the all the all the police officers, and so on and so forth. So maybe in the past, you know, an officer would call kind of the liaison that polices the team, and that person would grab the player and it kind of be handled internally. But now with liability, you can't do that. You have to be transparent. You know, what if somebody found out about that? So that was even before I got in the league. That's the way that things were handled confidentially, um, no transparency. Um, and now today it's like, it can't happen like that. And you see, you see there's transparency from coaches emails, like coach uh, John Gruden got fired uh, because of some of the language he used in his emails and that stuff came out and then the NFL decides to do its own investigation. So it's a liability to not do the right thing. So teams are kind of forced to do the right thing. Um, but from the statistics that I've heard and that I've seen the amount of DUIs or the amount of, um, spousal issues and so on and so forth, it's relatively the same to what the general population is, if not slightly lower so that I, I haven't looked at these stats anytime recently but when i was playing and we talk about these issues and how to avoid them um it was also told to us that it, it's very similar to what you see in the general population so yeah it's just you know we have so much more access to information and different things go viral we hear our news in different ways and you have algorithms that are being fed to you of, of what the news is that you like and you want to hear uh, much different than we take in than we would take information just ten years ago when most of it would either be a newspaper newspaper or TV. We have a lot more um, different avenues of, of screens and things that are feeding us and giving us information, and there's just a lot more transparency now. So I don't anticipate that number would go up. I think it'd still be the same. We just hear about it at a at a faster rate. Brandon, what can we do right now to support? You know what? My business is about people being healthy. It's about people living their best life. It's about living a longer life. Um, so really, I look at it a completely different way. And 
you know, people talk about, you know, Brendan, you should have exclusivity, not like me being exclusive, but like, uh, like non-competes and, and you shouldn't promote fitness and see fitness as a, as a whole ecosystem and encourage people to do, you should encourage people just to do what you do and to go to your business. But that's not the way that I was built. And that's not the way that I was designed. And also black people in general don't have access to a lot of the different fitness concepts and whatnot. There's barriers to entry and certain fitness communities are, or certain fitness concepts are only in certain communities, which aren't representative of black communities and whatnot. So I think for me, um, I want the world to be a better place. I want everybody to be healthy, but especially disenfranchised communities, which happen to be communities of color and uh, socioeconomic communities that are disadvantaged as well. So yeah, I'm in the fitness business. I'm a fitness entrepreneur. And a lot of the investments that I make are in fitness. Um, the charity that I do is geared towards the disenfranchised, um, whether that be in developing countries or um, helping communities that don't have access to fitness. And why are these communities unhealthy? Uh, what's the education? How are they being taught on how to stay healthy and to be strong and to live a long, vibrant life? And there's food deserts and there's lack of clean water even in Flint, Michigan, the same as sub-Saharan Africa. And how does that impact children and families and missing work to stay at home with sick kids? Um, so yeah, I think I, I do very well as a, as a fitness entrepreneur. Um, the, the thing I would like to see is Americans be healthier, Americans to get off of their butts, Americans to eat better food and to live healthier lives. And obviously a way we can do that is through fitness and improving our diets. Um, so yeah, th that's one of my biggest missions is just to help people live uh, a healthier life. What is something that we as consumers don't know about the fitness industry that we should know? Um, let me see. What do consumers not know about the fitness industry? Um, I probably have to put, I have to take my entrepreneurial hat off and I have to put kind of my fitness trainer mind on. Um, you stumped me, doctor. You really stumped me. But what I will say is... Um, Specifically speaking of of the ethnic community where we have higher rates of diabetes and hypertension and things that affect us of the sort. And a lot of it has to do with our diet. And if we can shift our diet around incrementally, if we could take in less and we can exercise more, then you're going to increase your lifespan. I mean, I think people do know that for the most part, but for some reason, the education's not getting out there to certain communities. And so, for example, my mom's a type 2 diabetic. Now, if my mom can just change her body composition, which we work on, we try to get her walking, but of course, she's in her 70s and whatnot. Her knees are starting to hurt a little bit in her hips. But if we can change her body composition by 25 to 5%, she can get off of her diabetes medication. Um, and if you're working and you're having issues with that, if you stand half of your day or even longer, instead of sitting at your desk, you can lose up to five to 10 pounds a year. And, you know, if you, if you weigh 200 pounds and you're dropping just 10 pounds, then that's that two and a half to 5% that we're talking about of changing your body composition. So there's a lot of little tricks um, that people can apply and implement. And you don't even have to necessarily go to the gym. You can walk, you can stand, there's a lot of different things you can do. Now, if you want to dive even deeper into fitness, um, and I know this is more entrepreneurial, but from a fitness standpoint, if you can up your intake and you can just work out a little bit harder, um, then there's a lot of benefits and they can be hormonal. Um, they can increase your bandwidth. You can release serotonin to make you happier, better bandwidth to help you manage throughout the day and be more productive. So that's why I love fitness so much. I think it's the the easiest way you can improve your life. If you say, Hey, there's, there's a bunch of ways you can improve your life. You know, you can become, you know, let's say more intelligent, or you can become, you know, more attractive by whatever beauty metrics you use, 
or you can get fit. The easiest thing to do would be get fit. <laughs> um, you can start at any point in time. It doesn't have to be the new year um, or Monday. Um, you could start at any point in time and you can instantly track and and get better and become more fit and improve your lifespan and improve your life. So that's why I'm so excited about fitness. And I have been since I was a young boy and it made sense for me to get into um, fitness as an entrepreneur. So Brandon, talk to, I'm going to get personal here. Talk to the woman over 55 years old. You talked about hormones and um, there's all kinds of things going on. And they want to change their body composition. And I know you mentioned about the standing, more exercise. Speak specifically about um, healthy lifestyle or a way to eat. Yeah. Um, so in terms of healthy lifestyle and a way to eat, I think as Americans, we've become grazers. And we'll be anywhere and it's like let's eat a snack or even in the fitness community they say hey eat six meals a day but that's you know humans have been here for thousands of years and we never did that before and now all of a sudden we're going to do that and you wonder why americans are the most unhealthy people on the planet from an obesity and and just over consumption consumption standpoint and then all the myriad of issues that it come that comes along with over consuming food and then the lack of quality of the food on top of it. So there's two things that I direct people to do that what's healthy for me might not be healthy for you. So even if I'm eating broccoli and kale and squash and all these things, those foods might not be healthy for you. And they might be healthy for me. And maybe pork works for me. And maybe fish works for you. And maybe fish doesn't work for me, right? So one thing you need to do is you need to figure out what are the foods that work for you. And you can do a microbiome study. And that's just a a study of your gut. And they usually do that through a stool sample and seeing what the flora and everything is like in your gut. And then there's also blood samples that you can see. And the common sensitivities that we hear about is gluten allergies, shellfish, peanut, but you can have those sensitivities or allergies to any food on earth. Um, so that's the first thing that I would do. And then the second thing is I would look into intermittent fasting because like I mentioned before, your brain is wired through your gut. So your gut's always telling you, eat this, eat that. I crave this. I crave that. And it's usually not good things. It's usually the chips or the burgers or the fries. Um, but once you cleanse your gut out of that, then the right foods will be rewired and you'll, you'll crave the foods that work for you instead of craving the bad foods. And that takes some time, but through intermittent fasting and then learning the foods that work for you, you can do that. For me, I eat two meals a day. Um, if I snack, I try to have it fruit, fruit or veggies, which happens sometimes. And sometimes it's goldfish cause I have a two year old. <laughs> um, but, um, I eat my first meal of the day at 11 a.m. And then I try to eat my second meal of the day around 6 p.m. And then the rest of the time, you know, my body's digesting food shortly after that. But by the time I go to sleep around 10, 11, that food's pretty much been digested. And then my body can focus on healing. And then um, it's a good sign when your body says it's hungry and you don't eat. And then you have a set window. So your body does like to know, hey, I'm going to. You know, my body knows we're eating 11, we're eating at six. Sometimes it might be a little bit later, but um, those are the windows I try to feed in and your body gets used to that. And that's how we used to eat for years and years and years. We'd be hunters and, you know, we'd be gathering, but we weren't sitting around um, just grabbing food out of the fridge and eating snacks and stopping at Starbucks on the way and doing, you know, just over consuming food. So it, it, it might sound a little bit foreign, but once you get into the groove of doing that and you build your your feeding windows and your time around that, it becomes pretty seamless. And if you can decrease your calories by 30%, you can increase your lifespan by 30%. So it's pretty interesting and and fascinating to think about. Now, are you doing any coaching virtually or is everything that you do um, in person? So everything kind of changed um, through COVID and, you know, for me, I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, playing in the NFL, I kind of set a value for my time. And as an entrepreneur and working in my business, I have a value for my time. Um, and there's different formulas and ways that I came up with what my value is and, 
you know, I based it on an annual basis. And from an annual basis, I, I broke it down to 40 hours a week. And then I broke it down to an hourly. And so it's just not feasible for me to be able to coach people uh, based on the income and, and my time. And so when I do things, I usually do them in groups. Um, and it, it makes a little bit more sense to do it in groups. But for now, the only coaching I really do is via Tonal. And it's a company I invested in that I also um, work with and I coach through Tonal. But you have to actually have the equipment. Prior to that, I was with Orange Theory. And these are the really the only two companies that I can work for as an employee. I can consult some other um, some other companies. But um yeah, so for the most part, I'm I'm not really accessible to coach, um, but I do work with companies, and then I do work with larger groups. But from an individual standpoint, the cost basis doesn't make sense for the individual. There are so many brands and businesses, Brandon, that are dominating. Talk about a brand or a business that's dominating that you admire and. Well, that's very easy for me to talk about. And this brand didn't come out of left field, even though they came out of left field. They've been around for 10 years. And the founder is Elon Musk. And as I mentioned, everything is about energy right now. And money is energy. And you go to work and you trade energy for money. And I wake up and I give my kids energy. And the sun is beaming energy on my roof, whether I have solar panels or not. And if you have solar panels, you're capturing that free energy. Um, and I happen to drive a Tesla. So the company is Tesla. Um, but I'm also excited about Bitcoin, which isn't a company, but it is energy and it's, it's energy in the form of digital currency. But, um, and there's Ethereum as well. And a lot of other different things, a lot of different ways to capture energy, whether that be hydro, solar, nuclear, but, um, those are all clean energy, by the way. But yeah, Tesla and Elon Musk, I am definitely obsessed and they do things very differently than other companies. And Elon's just very different himself. And uh, I really admire that. I want you to have a monologue and I want you to name this person living or not. And this person has inspired you or has been so instrumental in your life. Name that person and what are you saying to that person? Hmm. That is a tough one. I think that... I'm pretty in awe of how people operated in the past and how we arrived to where we are today. And I often think of, I know this is going to be odd, but I often think of Harriet Tubman and her freeing people, you know, going from the South and traveling all the way up through Canada and like, how did that work? And how did you have the courage to go back and to continue to free people? And how did you figure it all out? And how many people have done that in the past and they didn't live to see, to see it through? Um, even though, you know, my descent is much different. Um, being Nigerian American and whatnot, um, it just, it just fascinates me um, how, our people survive through the passage and to be able to be here and to thrive and to where we're at and what we're doing. And just to think about the Amer the amazing African-Americans that came before us, whether that be Frederick Douglass. And I mean, it is Black History Month, so a lot of these people are fresh on my mind and Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. Um, and I just happened to be watching this show 1863 or 1883 right now. Um, and it gives us a, a, a peek into, you know, nearly 200 years ago, 150 years ago on, and how people lived. And um, I just find it quite fascinating. So just to be able to live and to thrive um, and to be where we are now. But it's also hard to imagine that the world was ever like that. And why was the world like that? And sometimes we're reminded when we think about Ahmaud Arbery that the world is still like that in some places. Um, 
or we think about um, even South Africa and apartheid wasn't that long ago, or that they're still living Americans from the first time we unsegregated, is that the right word? Desegregated uh, schools in America. There's still people alive that witnessed that and experienced that. So with that being said, um, yeah, the first person that came to my mind is, is, is Harriet Tubman and just her strength and her leadership and her ability to, to do what she did so courageously. And absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And even with um, Black History and, you know, what we say and Black Entrepreneur Experience podcast, it's like Black um, History 365. So thank you for that. Brandon, fill in the gap. Thank you, Pandemic Because. Thank you, Pandemic, for putting the brakes on everything. We're in a booming, hustling economy, and we thought that we had it all figured out. And then all of a sudden, George Floyd happened, pandemic happened, and everybody really had to sit at home and reflect on what is important to them. And for me, I had a brand new baby at home. And this baby loves me more than all my other babies, because daddy was home 24 seven and daddy wasn't out at work you know, half the day and I changed more diapers. Thank you, pandemic, for allowing me to change more diapers the last two years than I changed in the last 14 years before that with my other two children. Thank you, pandemic, for making me sit at home with my family and my wife and doing TikTok dances, uh, watching anime with my children, taking my children through workouts. Um really thinking about my business and my future and how I'm going to impact the world. Thank you, Pandemic, for allowing me to think about my worth and my value, whether that be an hourly standpoint or what my legacy is going to be in the future, which I rearranged all that stuff. Thank you, Pandemic, for forcing me to look and manage my portfolio and to dial in on um, on my, um, why am I blanking on the word? Uh, on my trust, <laughs> my living trust, and how I'm going to structure my living will, um, really putting all the power and all the onus back on me to create the future that I want, even though I was doing amazing. But thank you for taking everything away, and but allowing me to be on a solid, steady foundation to really plan on wh what I want to achieve and what I want to accomplish and really what I want to do. I had no idea that I'd kind of transition out of being with Orange Theory from 2013 to to March of 2020, and I haven't gone back to the day to day stuff with my company. And it's you know it's a 300 million dollar company that I sit on the board with with my other partners and our capital um, and our equity partners. Um, but I haven't gone back to the day to day day and doing that. So thank you, pandemic, for making me pivot and making me think that I can do and I can achieve and I can accomplish more and there's more out there for me to do and not to rest on my laurels and be comfortable even though I have a very valuable company. I can rinse and repeat and pivot and do something different and make a billion dollar company. So thank you pandemic for just putting the brakes on everything. And um, But also thank you pandemic for not taking anything away from my family and from the families that are close to me, I know that there's been a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy, and we've been able uh, to avoid that. So while, you know, monetarily things were taken away and, you know, my business definitely suffered and we're still strategizing on how to get that business back and get our, our, our value back to where it was. But um, in terms of health uh, and true wealth, not monetary wealth, thank you for not taking anything away from me. And, really allowing me to focus on what is important. So it was a very instrumental 2020 and 2021 um, that the pandemic really opened up my eyes. And I feel like Neo, when he saw the matrix and I just see life very, very differently now. And I do have a lot more patience, which I alluded to earlier in the podcast that I want to have more patience and I want to spread more love. I'm giving a lot of less high fives and a lot less hugs. I want to get back to giving high fives and hugs 
Um, but I definitely do have more patience and I do see the world a lot different. And um, I can't wait for a lot of things to come back, but I also am looking forward to some of the differences that uh, that the world in the United States is going to have uh, leading the way with George Floyd and um, policing and the NFL focusing on Black Lives Matters and, and representation and um, companies seeking out more black women and black men to sit on boards to have executive positions and have more representation. Um, yeah, I think through a lot of pain and, and suffering the, the, we will come out ahead because of, uh, because of uh, COVID. Speaking of legacy, when it's all said and done, Brandon, how do you want to be re- Well, I think that, you know, I want to be that relative that people talk about for a long time. Like it's a hundred years from now and I'm long gone. You know, I hope people are saying, you remember, you know, great, great grandfather, I am Badejo. Like he led the way he changed everything for us. And, you know, maybe there's a bust of me or something and, you know, generational wealth, generational health, um, I hope, you know, a, a lot of families go bust. And I think through my legacy, I want to make sure that my family continues in the Ion Badejo family, um, the name and the accomplishments uh, that my kids continue to do that and their kids continue to do that. Um, I think about my my uncle and my dad and particularly my uncle because he's a doctor and he always kids, he says, you know, there are lots of kids around here named Benjamin. So he's a uh, OBGYN and not because he's a great doctor, even though he is, but because he's such a great person in the community that that these families name their children after my Uncle Ben, Dr. Ben. So I hope that I can have that same impact um, within my family where we continue as the Ayamba Dejo family continue to impact and change the world for equality, financial literacy, uh, representation, um, focusing on the environment and energy and equity. Um, yeah, maybe there's an endowment, you know, that I start at some point and continue the Ayamba Dejo name and my kids run it after me and their kids run it after, after my kids. Um, but definitely want to impact the world and, have the Ayamba Dejo see the world to world peace and and world equality and world representation. That'd be a beautiful thing. If you conducted this interview, what is the one question you would have asked yourself? I want you to ask the question and answer. Wow. I think that it has to be something around financial literacy and I don't have the exact question, but let's try to take some steps towards this together. Um, it would have to be something of the sort of how do I find my financial independence, my financial freedom in turn, freeing my time so I can spend my time on the things that I want to spend my time on instead of a rat race, where I'm chasing a paycheck. Um, so how do I find financial freedom, financial independence? Um, and not everybody's looking for that, but I think a lot comes with that. Um, some people enjoy, you know, even though I've, I've had those things, I enjoy working and I enjoy being around people, but I think too many people are stuck living a life paycheck to paycheck. Um, and how do we change that, especially in our communities in disenfranchised communities? I grew up on welfare in government housing and free cheese, free milk, free cereal, um, powdered milk, food stamps, you know? So um, if, how did I come out of that and get to where I am? So I think my question would be structured around that somehow. And I don't have the question, the exact question, but I think you know what I'm leading to. And I think the answer to kind of freeing yourself from the burdens of having to work all day and night and not being with your family and not doing the things that you want to do is that obviously there, there comes a point where you have to work hard now and sacrifice now. So you don't have to do it later. Um, 
and there's some things that I kind of look at and I call it my peapod theory. And for me, or for you, it's like, what are you passionate about? And for me, something I was passionate about was football, but football in a sense is fitness. Um, I know you're not going to, you're going to probably say, no, it's not, but it's something I enjoyed to do. And, and, and so through fitness, through, you know, playing sports and through working out and playing a lot of different sports and working out, I was passionate about fitness. Is there, is there a problem with fitness? This is my second piece. So my first is passion. What is your passion? What is your hobby? And, and, in the way to monetize that is, is there a problem with your passion? And if you can solve the problem with your passion, um, then that'll give you purpose. And so what was the problem with fitness? Well, we live in America. There's not a lot of fit people. You go into black communities, there's even less fit people. You go into ethnic communities, there's even less fit people based on the food, the education, the access to healthy food. Um, and so, since there's a problem, if you can solve that problem, then there's the rest of the P's open up to you. And what are the other P's? The other P's are purpose. And so for me, through helping this problem of getting people fit, I found immense purpose. And I could wake up every day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. I had this purpose. But also, by solving this problem, I was able to bring profit into my pockets. Um, and so I created, well, I found a franchise that was built around fitness and to this day, still don't feel like I worked a day of my life, even though I've worked 80 hour weeks, I've taken a lot of risks and signed a lot of leases and indemnifications and legal and loans and all these things, but it doesn't feel like work because I'm delivering fitness and it's giving me, it's bringing me closer to my passion and, and I feel purposeful every single day. And therefore I have this nice, robust business. Um, and if you're not on that side of things, then, you know, philanthropically, which is another P, you know, sounds like an F. Um, philanthropically, maybe it's a philanthropical endeavor that brings you passion and purpose and you're solving a problem. Um, and then the biggest P for me is people and being around people and making an impact and making a difference. So um, I kind of base everything I do now around my Peapod theory and whether I'm doing it for free, it's philanthropical, or whether I'm doing it for business, it's got to check off a whole lot of P's. If it's just if it's just something I'm, I'm passionate about, but you know there's no purpose there, and I'm not solving any problems, and the pe the right people out there, and it's not you know philanthropic or profitable, then you know it's checking off one P. It's a hobby, so I take it off a of passion, I put it into hobby, and it's not in the P's, you know. So um, that's kind of a quick runaround with the time that we have um, on on solving some of your problems to to get yourself to either financial freedom or to to solve um, your purpose in, in philanthropy. So you're filling your cup in, in other ways. Brandon, we've come to the part of our interview. It's called Rapid Round of Fun. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like the, you to give me very quick answers. If there's something you desire not to answer, feel free to say pass. Are you ready for the rapid round of fun? Man, everything's been rapid. You've been shotgunning me this whole time, but you want to go faster. <laughs> okay, let's go. This is a sprint. Let's do it. You are amazing. Your first job? My first job, I worked at a retirement home in Santa Cruz, California. And wow, that was an amazing experience. I was 15. Your favorite color? Black. Your favorite holiday? I think it needs to have a new name, but my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving because in the light of world peace, I want to bring everybody together to break bread. Your ideal car. Tesla, baby. Let's go. Electric. The last movie you saw. Um, what was the last movie? Man, I, saw, I watched a movie a few nights ago with my family in the theater. I can't even remember what it was. Um, but we watch TV shows all the time. We're watching a very cool anime called Attack on Titan. It's very, very interesting. If you can get over the cartoons and the um, the subtitles, 
I suggest watching Attack on Titan. It is a it is a very in depth um, um, anime series. Thank you for that. You you relax doing what? Sweeping the house is very relaxing and meditative for me. Your, <laughs> your favorite singer or rapper? Wow. I think right now it's Kanye West. I think so. And Sade is a close second. Your favorite dance song? Um, man, what was that song? I, I had to dance to it all the time. Um, I can't remember the name. Um, Pooh Shiesty is the guy, as the rapper's name. I can't remember the name of the song, but man, that thing comes on. I just got to start shaking my hips. <laughs> what food you eat every week, no matter what? Every week, every day I eat rice. It's the most important food in the world. And white rice has a bad rap. It's better for you than brown rice. But man, this whole world is built on rice. Every culture, every community eats rice. But uh, yeah, jollof rice for the Nigerians represent. That's a great little um, tip on that. Your favorite month. My favorite month. Well, I'm born in September, but I can't say September is my favorite month. I really enjoy June, which is LGBTQ plus month. Um, and then we have Juneteenth in June as well. So let's go with June because we get to rep- we get to celebrate a few different um, groups in June. Workout or hit the couch? Oh, it's got to be a workout. It's got to be a workout. The couch doesn't even feel good unless you work out first. So, Absolutely. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us on Black Entrepreneur Experience Podcast. Before we let you go, why don't you share with our audience the best way that they can reach you, connect with you, and do business with you. Feel free to leave all your social media handles. Dr. Francis, thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you so much for your professionalism. Something that really jumped out at me when we first started communicating with each other is that for your guests, if they do not follow through with their commitments, they will not be allowed to come back on the show later. I really appreciated that because your time is valuable and your guests should respect and appreciate your time. And it made me step up my game, even though I've never missed a podcast before. But once I saw that, I was like, this woman is my kind of person. She's cut from the exact same cloth as me. Now, with that being said, if you want to get into the best shape of your life, regardless of what fitness level you're at, you can purchase a tonal. Now, there is a barrier to entry. It's, you know, you can do it on a firm and whatnot, but you can find me on tonal. You can take my classes and, um, but there's also Orange Theory Fitness if you want to do in-person fitness. So one's at home that you do on the tonal and then there's Orange Theory Fitness. We have them all over the United States, over a thousand locations domestically, um, and we're also in 30 countries. So if you do want to get into the best shape of your life, I suggest either one of those. If you want to get a hold of me, it's Brendan310, B-R-E-N-D-O-N 310. Um, you can find that on Twitter. You can find that handle on Instagram. And then on Facebook, I have a blue check on Brendan Ayan Badejo. So you guys can hit me up on any of the social media platforms. I'm a little too old for TikTok, but my kids got TikTok. I'm not tickety-tockety myself. But yeah, the best are Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please, social media world, do not add any more because I got my hands full with all the social media as it is. And what is the entry to get in on a tone? On a tonal? So the, the unit, you know, it costs like $3,500. But if you get it through a firm, then, you know, the payments are like 60 something dollars a month. And it's a strength trainer. So anything you can do in, in a gym, you can do on a tonal and it goes in your house and it's the size of a flat screen TV. It takes up almost no room. And there's hundreds of exercises, hundreds of workouts and programs and coaching. And you have access to all of our exercise library and all of our fitness professionals. So our, our competition is like Peloton, but they're not necessarily strength training. So this is true strength training at home, which everybody needs to incorporate. It's actually the best way to get healthy is through strength training. So it's digital weights 
it's smart weights and the, the trainer doesn't take up that much space at all. And it has hundreds of pounds on the trainer. So you don't need dumbbells and barbells and all these things. The trainer already has all that stuff and um, it's smart. So when you pick it up, the weight is off, you hit a button, the weight turns on to whatever your desired weight is, but you go through an assessment and it assigns weight to you and it has AI and alg algorithms once you go through that assessment. So it knows what you bench press, it knows what you squat, it knows what you curl, and it's just a fascinating piece of technology. Tonal, T-O-N-A-L. Thank you for that. Brandon, thank you so much. That is a wrap. Thank you, Dr. Francis. You're amazing. I appreciate you. Take care. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.